Welcome to the Not Your Normal Social Emotional Learning Podcast. I am Nini White, your host of this podcast, which seeks to deepen and widen educators' perspective on the wide-ranging relevance of the many layered dimensions that contribute to the healthy and holistic enrichment of young children's social, emotional, cognitive, and life skills development. This episode, and the next actually, will be focusing on frustration, a topic that deserves careful, even heartfelt attention. I've invited Wendy Zacuto to join us again so that we may benefit from her decades of experience as a teacher, a principal, an academic researcher, as well as a parent and grandparent who is deeply committed to walking her talk. So, how lucky are we to be able to talk to Wendy Zacuto again uh, about early childhood education and with social-emotional learning. And today's topic is a topic that maybe some early educators think that they hadn't really considered what a very real issue this is that they're going to be dealing with on a regular basis and that issue being a child experiencing frustration. So, um, Wendy, the reason that I was inspired to create a whole episode around this topic is because I was just talking to some early childhood educators, and they were not prepared to have to deal with these young kids' uh, intense levels of frustration. And so... I, I I wonder what the starting point is for you, where you would like to start talking about it. Like, do you want to talk about the first time you experienced, you came across young children's frustration when you were a young teacher or? Um, I think I'd like to talk about when I became a director of a, of an early childhood program. And I was also the key teacher. It was a co-op. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of experience working with the parents directly. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I was a parent of two children by then. Mm. Um, I, I always started when I talked with parents, getting them to imagine what it would be like if they lived in a world at the scale that children do. <sighs> that when they walked through a door, it would be way twice as high as they were every time they walked in a door and all the rooms were twice as or three or four or five times bigger than they were mm. that the tables and chairs were too big for them to the light switches were out of their reach and i i painted as as detailed a picture as i could with them comfortable or you know of closing their eyes if they felt like it and then I had them just respond and they, it was profound. They, they hadn't really thought about what the world is like for very small people, just, just being in that, those small bodies. Yes. So I think it, it just life itself sort of becomes the, the, the matter out of which frustration is, is, you know, just a piece of the world. Right. Right. And then, and then we can get into the specifics when you're in the kindergarten class. Um, what happens that would, you would notice most often would set it off? And then how did you, when you were a teacher, help kids move through that? 
Well, I think as a teacher, and I was just having this conversation with someone today, that, that people who go into education very often are very sensitive to children and to their moods and wanting to be able to support them. So we come in with a lot of strengths when we choose that kind of a role for our, our careers. Mm. Um, so I always knew that there was some sensitivity there that I had to be aware of. And I was always looking for data. I was always looking at how's this child going to react in this situation? And how can I use that information to make them more comfortable? Because I just sensed that the more comfortable they were in their own skins, mm -hmm. the easier time they would have. But I didn't understand what we know today. Today, we have the benefit of brain research. And what we know is that there are, are many pieces of our brain, but I'm going to talk about two right now that are very clearly connected to the idea of frustration. That okay. it, the prefrontal cortex is at the top of our brain, kind of behind our foreheads. And that's the part that we expect, I guess, children to bring with them to school, preschool or kindergarten. That's the part of us that makes the most sense, that's kind of balanced, it organizes, it plans, and hopefully it leads our actions. But so often what we see is instead the power of the amygdala, which is uh, an ancient part of our brain that is hidden deep inside. And its purpose is to alert us to danger. And primitive man would... Um, experience danger and then need to flee or freeze you know as you see a possum does mm. or or fight you know mm. if there was an actual animal in its path in his or her path mm -hmm. so so those reactions from the amygdala show up also in many different behaviors that we see that could be attributed to frustration we can become irritable we can become defensive. Temper. <laughs> I see that a lot. Oh, yes. With a three-year-old. Yes. Avoidance. Sometimes children will choose not to do something because they know that their frustration level with it is hard, mm -hmm. is high. Mm -hmm. Anxiety, you know, numbing, just removing themselves or detachment. And in the end, sometimes children out of frustration even just give up. And those behaviors are all different, but they kind of tie all back to the child's somehow feeling that this is not a safe endeavor for me. I don't feel safe right now. Yeah. And so, I mean, and those are a lot, that's, that's a huge range of emotions that all funnel down into that. And I, and rightly so, I ex appreciate your explanation into that frustration. So is there one sort of approach for all of that? I mean, tell us what you did as a teacher. Well, I think as, um, as a teacher, I, for an example, with older kids, I think this math, math instruction is fraught with mm. potential for frustration. Mm. And I was given the task of teaching all of the fifth grade math when I was teaching ma uh, math. And I, myself, I like math. But I was kind of saying, you know what, somebody else can teach math, let's hire someone to teach math, and I'll do all the language arts, you know, because that's, that's what we tend to think of as the warm, fuzzy part of teaching. Right. You know? And so truthfully, we couldn't find anybody who identified who self identified as someone who loved math. So I, I said, I mean, that says a lot, right? right. Yes, it does. <laughs> so I said, 
okay, I'll do it. And so taking that on and letting go of what I thought of as the warm, fuzzy part, I challenged myself with the idea of how do I make math warm and fuzzy? Because for children to really learn, they have to feel that. And the things that I did were things that you certainly could do with younger children as well. Um, You can help with making problem solving a challenge and fun and realize that mistakes are part of the, of the process. Yes. And so encouraging children through their mistakes or encouraging many ways of looking at a problem so that everybody feels respected as they take that risk to step out into something that is perceived to be more difficult to the child. Mm. And the more that the children felt free to experiment and share their ideas, the more I saw that they were taking greater risks and that they were growing as mathematicians. And then I actually divided my my groups. You know, I, I didn't want to teach everybody all at the same time the same thing because kids can feel frustrated because they feel lost in a large group. Sure. But if you divide them into small groups where they can have their turn to speak up and share what they're feeling, we can be more responsive to their needs, but also they can have more power and more experience of ownership of what they're doing. So those are the things that I tried to do to make math less frustrating and I learned a lot just from from trying to adapt the environment to suit children so that they could be brave that's beautiful and when they did make a mistake in those in those smaller circles how did they handle it I mean were they embarrassed was did they shut down or well one of the strategies that I used was from Japan. Um, the Japanese math method is that they give children a problem to solve and then they take all the answers that children get and put them up on the board uh-huh. and say, wow, look at all these ranges of answers that we have. How can we figure out if there's a right answer? And you engage the children in the process of, of, deciding okay well let's look at this one does this one make sense and you it just they're involved in a conversation fabulous and and so they become they own the process sure and so they themselves does this sound familiar yes it does yes it does (laughs) and this this process helps them to say things like oh, I can see that what I did led me to that answer. But the answer that I see now is this one. Instead of saying, I had the wrong answer and this is the right answer. Right. Because what we want kids to do is to be aware of their processes so that they can use that same process in the future. We're not talking about just solving one problem on, you know, at 1.35 on a Tuesday morning. (laughs) Right. That that tra- right. that element of transference is such a, a powerful yeah. tool in life. Yes, yes, fabulous. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. Mm-hmm. You know, I have maximum respect and appreciation <laughs> for you. You you're not perfect, though. Surely you're not perfect. You must have made a mistake <laughs> or a blooper at some point or another. Come on, spill, Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yes, just yesterday. <laughs> With one of your grandkids? Yes, yes. I had my grandkids. And um, and I'm actually always, again, I have an environment in my, in my 
in my home that's kind of like a classroom so there's lots of opportunities yeah I, I pick them up after school I know it's a, a long day for them so I you know I have cozy areas and I have things that I can separate them so that they can work independently yeah. and um as I as we were getting ready to leave at the end of the day I forgot to remind myself that it's the end of the day. Uh-huh. And that they, they really love to explore my garage, which is where my car is. So the, the chances of my being able to take them from my living room into their car seat is a challenge for them and me both. <laughs> and I sort of forgot that. Uh-huh. So as we're walking down the stairs, I'm noticing that my granddaughter likes to put this big chalk that we have for them to write outside under my tires so she can see what it looks like when when the tire goes over it <laughs> and, and so she, you know and we she and I were kind of talking about it but I forgot about my three-year-old grandson you know and he walked around the car and there was a bicycle pump and he likes to take the pump and and pretend that it's connected to my tires on my car and pump up my my tire uh-huh. And, um, and I said to him, Oh, honey, you know, we really don't have time to do that now. And he just oh. like clawed me. I mean, scraped my face and, you know, no, yeah. It, and it, it was, it took me by surprise. I didn't expect that that was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, call it a blooper if you want. I mean, I was the one in charge of the timeline, so I probably could have prevented it. But the fact is, is that little children have such a small tripwire. You're almost any time during the day going to have a surprise like that because they're so fluid with their emotions. And, and the proof of that is that I just, you know, I protected myself, but I picked him up and I just started rocking him and just being as calm as I possibly could be. And then I handed him something that I knew was in my car because I have things for him to hold while he's in his car seat. And we started talking about that. And then I gradually put him into his car seat. And, um, you know, I think if we expect, it comes back to our expectations of children, you know. I I was teaching kindergarten teachers once, and I asked them to start by writing the list of their expected behaviors for kindergarten children. And they said things like sitting quietly, putting their, keeping their hands to themselves, you know, being quiet when other people are, you know, those kinds of things. And then I put up another piece of paper and I said, so what behaviors do you actually see? Yes. They just went wild, you know, (laughs) I mean, they filled up this whole page. And then I said, let's step back and look at these two. What do you notice? And they started laughing. And they said, wow, our expectations and what's actually there are so different, you know. And I think that's what we do sometimes is we forget, you know, we look at the best case scenario. And we do that for ourselves, too, by the way. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. (laughs) We we think that that we're only only worthwhile as long as things go exactly the way we think they should, (laughs) (laughs) you know. Yeah. But the truth is, is that we're always just negotiating behaviors, you know, among us as human beings. Yes. And, you know, it's that recovery piece that we really have to own, which is that when that that kind of balance point between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, the thing that makes it in homeostasis is the calmness of the adult. Yeah. So at some point, that adult 
whether they have a reaction or not, has to sort of own the situation and create true harmony, true peace inside themselves, and then provide that as the background for the child who's acting out. That is just so beautiful and so right. And like, it's very easy to talk about, but what is it that gets you, you know, when you could go in one direction with your emotions in in the moment? And and you know what I'm going to (laughs) say. No, I want to hear it. Tell me. My daughter-in-law has a pet pig. (laughs) And this pig started out in the family with my little grandchildren and my son when it was, you know, just a tiny little thing. And and we all thought it was going to stay little and it didn't. And it's now 50 pounds. Uh And it lives in their house right now. And I, they're talking about finding a home for it, which is really, you know, something I'm championing yeah. because I'm, afra- I'm afraid of it. Uh-huh. And I, part of the reason I'm afraid of it is because I just don't know anything about pigs and how they interact with children and how they'd interact with me. And I've had a couple of experiences I didn't like too much. Uh-huh. So when I walk in their house, my own my own um, fears, my own, you know, especially when I'm alone with the children and I'm taking care of them, yeah. you know, there are things that come up and I'm frustrated because I'm pulled in two directions. I want to be there. I want to be able to take care of my children. And yet there's something in that environment that doesn't feel safe to me. Yeah. And so, but what I realized is that my own self-reflection about my feelings about the pig, I'm very honest about. And it's funny for them because they do feel very comfortable with the pig. So it's kind of, it's an opportunity for them to feel a little bit more, you know, empowered than than even I. No, but for me to be able to say to them, you know, this is a hard situation for me. And, you know, I hope you'll be patient with me. And, you know, just kind of labeling some of the behavior and some of the feelings and I think, you know, as models for children, our own, our own frustrations and our own disabilities to deal well with things we can't change, <laughs> you know, <sighs> become opportunities for them to learn about us as human beings, too. And to learn that, um, to experience an honest interaction between mm-hmm. a grandparent or a teacher or an adult, mm-hmm. I think that is so respectful. I just worship that piece of the whole interaction and I think the other part of it is you know not to be judgmental about it you know it's not like you know getting angry at the situation or whatever it's just it's an uncomfortable feeling you know I don't I'm I'm off balance in this situation you know right so um, I think that's a good thing for kids to see yes Yes, especially when it's communicated in a way where there's no blame or mm-hmm. even self-blame. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, you know me, I want to go on and on, but and then again, I want to keep these uh, short and everything. So tell me, do you feel like we could continue this conversation at another time? Sure, absolutely. All right. Um, we'll wrap this one up now. Thank you, Wendy. Um, uh, I'll talk to you really, really soon, okay? All 
If you enjoyed this episode with Wendy Zakudo, you can, in part, thank Sweta, a brand new teacher in India who sent in a request to learn more about how to nurture and support her young students when they're experiencing frustration. Do you have a topic or challenge you'd like us to cover on this podcast? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to ask at kidsownwisdom.com. That's ask at kidsownwisdom.com. And hopefully you're subscribed to this podcast so you can automatically receive the second part of this interview with Wendy, in which she shares more of her insights about how frustration shows up based on the many influences in children's lives, most of which we will never really know about. Until then, have fun with your young students because they really need you to. Thank you.